welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And our sponsor this week is the JAEC Foundation, which is hosting an international conference on open dialogue this August. And you can visit the website jaecfoundation.org for more information. And now on to our interview. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Mad in America podcast. I'm Amy Biancoli, staff writer. Our guest today is Jessica Taylor, author of Sexy But Psycho, How the Patriarchy Uses Women's Trauma Against Them, which was published in March by Little Brown and quickly hit the London Times bestseller list. Based in England, she is a chartered psychologist with a PhD in forensic psychology and more than a dozen years of experience working with women and girls subjected to abuse and other trauma. She's the founder and CEO of Victim Focus, a trauma-informed UK organization that challenges the blaming and gaslighting of victims and advocates for change in how they're treated. She's also the author of the 2020 book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, Exploring Victim Blaming of Women Subjected to Abuse and Trauma. Jessica Taylor, so grateful to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I just have to be clear to our listeners, there's no way that we'll be able to cover everything in the book because the book touches on just about everything. And uh, you have to read it, anyone of any gender. My first question is just, it's at one point you say, the book has been burning away in my brain for years. So why this book? Why was it necessary? Why now? I think that... Ever since I figured out that mental health and psychiatry wasn't what it looked like on the surface, which was many years ago, but it was quite a slow realisation, I just had this urge to talk about it and to write about it. But at the time, I was a little bit sort of concerned that I was, I don't know, barking up the wrong tree, that I was some sort of conspiracy theorist or something. And, and like, I... I you know, I read and I listened to others and, you know, read a lot of books and read a lot of articles and things like that. And, and then my own practice, I saw mental health and psychiatry being used against women and girls on a daily basis. And for me, it was this belief in the professionals, belief in services and authorities that the best thing for them was to be diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder and to be given sedatives of medication and that there was really sort of nothing else for them. And I just didn't agree. Um, And I think that just got stronger, that feeling got stronger and stronger and stronger as my career went on to the point where I just couldn't ignore it anymore. And I really started to actively challenge it. I kind of thought, isn't this common sense? Like the things that I'm saying, they're not that wild. You know, I'm saying that if humans are traumatized, why would that constitute an illness? And therefore, why would they require some sort of medication uh, for distress? But actually, um, I realized that most people, when you make those arguments, don't understand it. They've been really effectively groomed. They've been effectively, you know, um, persuaded that these people have illnesses inside their brains uh, that are the equivalent to physical illnesses. Um, and yeah, so 
when I started writing books, when I started writing, I had this like thing in the back of my head that was like, write it, write it, do it, you know, put it out there, let people read it and like lay the evidence out to everybody that, you know, women are being pathologized and oppressed via mental health and psychiatry. And um, when I got the multi-book deal with Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, the first thing that I said to my publisher when, you know, when I first met him was, I want to write a book on this topic. You know, are you going to let me do that? And I'm just really lucky that my publisher absolutely backs my, you know, sort of freedom, uh, like like sort of freedom to academia, freedom of speech. And he backs me 100%. And he was like, yeah, absolutely do it. And so, yeah, was, that was how it, that's, I did it. <laughs> well, that's, that's wonderful. Well, I wanted to address early on this quote. You address the title right away. You say, this is talking about why you titled it Sexy But Psycho. So here it is, quote, Sometimes it strikes me that we are saying to women and girls, look sexy, be pretty, act feminine, be desirable, be sexually available, be fun, be flirty, be nice, but do not speak. And then in a little bit, you go on, do not talk about your traumas. That just popped out at me because I don't have to tell you, I don't have to tell any woman that she spends her life not being heard. That's such a, a universal experience in any context, but particularly after experiencing some form of trauma, some sexual violence, and then being ignored or worse, demonized. Could you speak to that a little bit? I think that you're right. What I guess I was getting at was that women are so effectively objectified and sexualized in society that your only role really is to look pretty and short. Um, and there are slight deviations to that every now and then, but it won't last very long. Like, for example, you know, if you're a female politician, you're only really accepted if you're also sexually attractive. If you're a female politician that's, for example, masculine presenting or a butch lesbian, or you don't dress or look a certain way, then you're very likely to be ignored or mocked relentlessly. The only sort of role that you have in society as a woman is a sex object. And if you step outside of that and have opinions, be assertive or be challenging or don't want to conform to femininity at all or that you're lesbian or, or something like that, then you, you are very quickly demonised in one way or another. Um, and I think also that, I mean, this might be quite a contentious point, but I also think that is reflected in which women are seen as real victims in the press and are taken seriously and have films made about their lives. It's always the women that fit the criteria that they're young and beautiful and had so much going for them and all that sort of thing. Like they're, they're the real victims. They're the ones that get to say anything. But even then, if they go too far, like what's seen as too far and talk about it too much or in too much detail or try and push for, you know, their perpetrators to be sacked or to be prosecuted or to reform or they start challenging systems of oppression, then they're in big trouble. Right. And the worst case scenarios when a woman is a victim of violence, when she's raped and she tries to talk about it. Obviously, this is a big part of your book and you tell the stories of different women, but what happens to that woman who says, hey, uh, this happened to me and wants to be heard? What happens after that? I think that the most common response, which was found in research from the 80s onwards, is that the vast majority, 
and I think this is very important that women and girls know this, the vast majority of women and girls who disclose that they've been raped or abused will do so, first of all, to a family member or a friend. It's never an authority first, generally speaking. But what the findings from the 80s onwards found that uh, about 84 to 80% of all of those women who speak to their family members or friends will be blamed or disbelieved or accused of lying by their family and friends. So that's actually the most common response from your family and friends is to be outcast, disbelieved, uh, reframed as um, lying, attention-seeking or malicious. So, you know, that's very common. And we all we know that self-blame is extremely common. We know that even girls of a young age who haven't even, you know, been directly blamed or directly exposed to particular views in society, despite that, even girls of the age of 11 years old um, will usually blame themselves and they will believe rape myths and stereotypes about what a real victim is. And they'll measure themselves against that, even from that young age. Adult women do that as well. Like, you know, something will happen to them in their relationship or by a, a stranger or an ex or a friend or whoever it is that abused or raped them. And the first thing a woman will start doing is measuring herself against this sort of hierarchical stereotype of like, am I a good enough victim? Was I drinking? Are there any witnesses? Who did I tell? What was I wearing? Did I bring it upon myself? Is there anything I could have done? Why didn't I say something? Why didn't I stop them? Why didn't I shout? Why didn't I fight back? And then also, you know, in relevance to this, that question around, you know, is anyone going to believe me? They're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think this is attention seeking. They're going to think this is some sort of mental health issue or a personality disorder. Um, and that was what I really wanted to capture in the book is that, you know, we live in a society that is doing this, in my opinion, this really strange movement towards pretending that there's no stigma in mental health and psychiatry and that it's completely neutral but women know it's not at a deep level they know it's not neutral they know that there's a chance that if they come forward and say I've been raped they're going to get recast as hysterical or mentally ill or disordered in some way repeatedly you make that point in the book how women are instantly discredited as somehow psychopathic or mentally ill, which is a term that you that you completely reject. But I was also struck in the book by that chart you have of two lists, ideal woman versus crazy woman. So beautiful versus ugly, young versus old, disobedient versus obedient, dependent versus independent. Um, and you look at all this in the context of history. Um, so is this, I, I mean, this is nothing new. Right. This is this is what women have gone through <laughs> since just about the beginning of, of time. Maybe not. Maybe a little after the beginning of time. But you talk about Eve. That women have been pathologized since Eve. Yeah, that's right. Because you know, when I wanted to write Sexy but Psycho, I felt very strongly that it needed to be situated in the historical context of you know uh, these things that we're seeing of women being positioned, as you say, as you know. Uh, problematic and difficult and ill and disordered and things like that this is this is thousands of years worth of narrative here like you know I spoke about um, ancient Greek philosophers who argued that women um, have are born defective defective versions of males and things like that feminism is so in its infancy compared to the misogyny the misogyny is thousands of years old the feminism is a hundred years old or something you know we are trying to undo and we're trying to unpick 
embedded structures in society of women being inferior and seen as crazy that have been dominant for millennia. Um, and I wanted to make that clear in the book so that people could almost like link the dots because there's so many of our systems today that are actually still based on things that are over a thousand years old or 500 years old or 300 years old. And I think people have lulled themselves into a false sense of security that we're a lot more progressive and intelligent than we think we are. Well, I think that happens with every generation too. It's like, okay, we're, we're finally aware. We finally realize all our errors in, in, in the past. And, and now we're, we're much shinier model than we used to be. Is that a hurdle to overcome? Like kind of saying to people, hey, wait, wake up. No, no, things aren't as great as you think they are. Yeah, I actually do think that. I, and, I, and that's one of the things I think people struggle with me the most is that I'm often the like voice of doom uh, that sort of goes, uh, yeah, no, we're not as good as we say we are. Or like, actually, we don't do that that well. Um, and so that I think is really important because what we are still like kidding ourselves all the time that we've got this stuff figured out, that we know more about the brain than we do, that we know more about psychology than we do and human behavior and human development. And, you know, we have entire disciplines essentially built on this set of beliefs that we know much more than we actually do. And when you sort of push people and say, but don't we really need to admit that a lot of those theories are wrong, that the evidence base is wrong, and that actually we need to take a massive step back and accept that a lot of what the public think about mental health and psychiatry is myth and is um, assumption and stereotype and bias and stuff. And that, I think, is where people start to get very uncomfortable because they don't want to take a step back, do they? I, as you pointed out, I mean, the system is designed really to make us accept how things are. Like, okay, um, the patriarchy, uh, the, the, the history of psychiatry, um, the DSM, um, and all of its various labels that are thrown at people. And I know you also kind of widen the lens to class, to the poor, um, you widen the lens to race, uh, history of, uh, of black people pathologized, for instance, most egregiously, drapetomania, enslaved people who are trying to be free, free uh, became pathologized. And it's like essentially in every case, it's like the upper echelons of the patriarchy saying, you're, you're wrong, you're innately wrong. Like women being told, you're menses. You're, you're bleeding every month. You're wrong. Oh, you're going through menopause. You're wrong. Um, you have this disorder. You have that disorder. You have hysteria. We have to yank that uterus out of you. We have to ch chain you up. So I, is that, is that basically it? It's like the, the people in power saying to those without power, um, the fact that you have no power means you're crazy. Basically you're, you're disordered. That's essentially the conclusion that I've come to that, you know, if you're in power, you can define what's abnormal and normal, and then you can place that on other populations, which is what we already do anyway. I mean, look at like colonialism and look at like what we do um, as uh, in history when white people have gone over to another community, another religion, another country and gone, that's all wrong. We're getting rid of all that. We're in control now. You know, we, we like people in power have been doing that forever. And I don't think psychiatry and psychology is any different. 
it always makes me think about something my wife said to me um, a couple of years ago. She, we were talking about philosophers um, in politics and psychology and ancient philosophy. And she just flippantly said to me, um, a lot of these philosophers only have the reputation they do now because they were some of the only people in society that could read or write. So they basically just said whatever they wanted. They were rich. They were in power. They were the only people that could write down their thoughts and then communicate them to other people. And so they were seen as the most important thinkers of the time, despite the fact that there were, there were probably many other very intelligent thinkers that couldn't read or write at the time. And therefore they were ignored because they were poor or they were less educated. So basically a bunch of men who were, you know, wealthy and at the top of society at the time wrote some stuff down and everyone was like, mm, yeah, that's, that's the way it works. Um, and she just made me laugh. It just, and I think a lot about that because I think, you know, my discipline is psychology and I think that's what happened in psychology as well. Uh, could you speak that, to that a little bit and how it relates to, well, frankly, the biomedical paradigm, the idea of everything being tied to something that's wrong with us. That fascinates me because one of the things that psychology is still not yet ready to do is accept that for getting on for 60 or 70 years now, there's been a crisis in psychology whereby it tries to assert itself as a physical science. Um, and I really do believe that psychology's obsession with trying to theorize um, men, like dis human distress, human emotion, as these sort of physical entities that can be measured and treated like illnesses, is because psychology is, is trying to keep up with medicine, physics, and biology and chemistry. Um, and I think psychiatry has been trying to do the same thing. Psychiatry, um, you know, eventually, after, after, after a period of time, almost got seen as a version, a branch of medicine. However, it can never keep up with medicine. It doesn't have the evidence base. It doesn't have the measurability. It doesn't have reliability or validity. You know, we've made zero useful discoveries in psychiatry and psychology in the last 100 years compared to medicine. And, you know, that's the way it is. Like, I think that we need to accept that these disciplines are not as robust as they wish themselves to be. It's one of the reasons that, as I said, I think in the book or in one of my books, I said that um, psychology has moved more and more now towards neuroscience and neuropsychology in the hope that the MRI machines will give us some insight into the brain and, and it will give us scientific data that looks like a physical science. And it means that, you know, universities have cut their departments in order to afford uh, MRI machines so that they can run studies with a sample of eight people that they scanned their brain that is ridiculous waste of money because the, you can't generalize you know it's not the same as the physical sciences you can't scan eight people's brains and then say oh this bit of the brain lights up when they think about a puppy and that's why everything is you know is like this and that, that's what's happened and, I, and this is what something that interests me is that I really love the fact that the brain doesn't give it give away its secrets. I really love that. And I and I really love the fact that you can't like dissect a brain and go, there's the thoughts and there's the memory and there's the consciousness. Like I really love that. And I think that actually 
the fact that we can't figure out exactly how it works and we can't define consciousness and we can't define a thought and we can't, we don't know what dreams are for. And there's all of these things that we still don't understand. I embrace that and really love that. But I know lots of scientists want, like they're looking for answers, they're looking for resolution, they're looking for, you know, a conclusion. I think sometimes that's like, that might be motivated by fear, you know, like that they, that they don't know. Um, whereas I would rather as remain open-minded and sometimes cynically, I, some, I think maybe, uh, we're not supposed to know <laughs> because we're a horrible species. <laughs> it's better off if we don't know. <laughs> yeah. That strikes me, um, as kind of a parallel with what you were saying before about how each generation, like we think that we're more advanced. We think we're better people. We think that society is in better shape. And what you're describing, I think at every, every generation of psychiatric psycho uh, professionals and people in psychology are looking, f saying, okay, we know, we know what's going on. Neuroscientists, we know what's going on in the brain. We have exactly what we need to know. What's past generations didn't know. That's why it's like every generation has to be convinced that they're at the cutting edge. Oh yeah, for sure. And, um, and that really does come at the detriment of almost like humility, like a acceptance that we are clutching a little bit at straws for some of this stuff. If we, if we look at it from that sort of white uh, supremacist sort of approach as well, we have ignored so much cultural wisdom around the world about the mind and about what emotions mean and how humans behave and how communities and society is built that, you know, psychiatry and psychology is notoriously white, upper class, you know, sort of control and male, of course. And I think that that's something that has really annoyed me in the last few years that, you know, the, the sweeping uh, control and influence of the DSM psychiatry and psychology as a as a white um, and very powerful and racist institution is then being sort of pushed across the world um, as a norm that those that, you know these disorders are the disorders of humans and now everybody has to fit into them despite the fact that human behaviour differs massively across religion culture language society community tribes everything like it is i find it so i find us so arrogant i really do well and speaking of again the dsm and the diagnoses themselves as you point out women are seven times more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder which has a reputation as being um uh, basically a, a, a wastebasket a garbage diagnosis and you also you call it the modern day hysteria. And, um, and once somebody's diagnosed with borderline, that goes back to not being heard because when someone is diagnosed as borderline, then anything they say is, if it was ever taken seriously, is definitely not going to be taken seriously because it becomes like a closed loop, right? It's like a vicious cycle. Much of the book spoke to me because my late sister uh, really struggled. This was back in the 80s and 90s. Um, with just a stream of diagnoses, and she was on every conceivable medication, was hospitalized 13 or 14 times, ultimately died by, by suicide in 92. None of this helped her, you know. I will never forget both her description of what happened when she got the borderline diagnosis, which was everybody stopped listening. And then I also remember one of her hospitalizations, where as soon as the straps were put on her, 
And she would say, no, I don't need this. That, well, that doesn't matter because you have the straps on your arms. And so reading this book, and I know a lot of people will have either personal experience with something like that, or they'll know someone they love with an experience like that. This is what women go through. Why is it not heard more often? What is it going to take until stories like that are heard? That is the power of the diagnosis, isn't it? Is that um, those stories won't be heard because they're not seen as legitimate stories because the diagnosis overrides the legitimacy of the story. So like if you've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, especially as a woman, and then you try and speak out about, I don't know, the way you were treated on the ward or the way that you're treated by your doctor or the fact that nobody will refer you for blood tests, even though you think you might be diabetic or whatever it is like that, that diagnosis really does position you as attention seeker, a liar, unreliable, disconnected from reality, uh, and also manipulative. And I, that one is the one I think that, annoys me the most because there are so many professionals out there that I've spoken to and I interviewed for the book that were directly trained and told do not listen to borderline patients they will manipulate you they will lie to you they will you know they will control you they'll wrap you around their little finger they'll get you doing everything that they want you to do and now we've got professionals that will you know speak to me and they'll say something like um Oh, well, we, you know, we don't talk to the borderline patients because they, they take information about you and then they'll use it against you. And I'm like, whoa, like, how have you been trained? Like, and even if, let's say, for example, that borderline personality disorder is real, which I don't think it is, but say it was, let's also accept that mental health is the same as physical health. And these are just illnesses. They're just the names of illnesses. How would you get away with training professionals not to listen to that particular set of patients? Nobody in med school is told like, don't listen to the diabetics. They will lie to you and they will control you and manipulate you. Like, so why, so why is it allowed about this? And it means that when you get that that diagnosis for me, like I've worked in, you know, like you said, I've worked in um, violence against women and girls now for 12 years, and it is the most common diagnosis. I can usually predict it before it even happens, weeks or months before it's coming. I know what's going to happen, and then I know what medication, and then I know what's going to happen. I know what the risk assessment is going to say. I know what the rest of their life is going to look like. It shouldn't be like that. Um the fact that it's used as a slur by professionals as well, professionals in my own field being like, oh, she's a bit borderline. Like, oh my gosh. And so does that tell you that the DSM itself is innately misogynistic? There's something in its essence that, that is innately mis misogynistic in the way that it's compiled, in the way that it's um, spread almost like the gospel in professional circles? the evidence base suggests already from previous pieces of research that the DSM is innately misogynistic because um, being female positively correlates with every single diagnosis in the DSM. Uh, we also know from previous pieces of research that women are much more likely to receive multiple psychiatric diagnoses in the DSM, uh, whereas men are more likely to just get one diagnosis. As we know, you know, borderline personality disorder, you're seven times more likely if you're female to be given that. You're also much more likely than that to receive a borderline personality disorder diagnosis if you're bisexual. Now, I find that fascinating because bisexuality in women is seen as 
almost like the ultimate deviance that she sleeps with women and men and that she's sexually attracted to both. And the DSM have always positioned that as an identity crisis, that if a woman is bisexual, it's because she has problems formulating her identity. And, you know, that for me is a red flag. There's there's a piece of research even a couple of years ago uh, in the UK that found that there is a higher proportion per like ward of women with borderline personality disorder that are bisexual than straight or lesbian. And I think that's interesting as well, because I'm not saying like lesbians are definitely discriminated against, um, but I just find it fascinating that it's bisexual women that are much more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So they're, they're demonized in a, in, in a particular way or in an additional way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, so, I'm also really interested in your work, and I know this is all tied in together. It's all part of the same soup, but your your work with victim blaming, your work with victimfocus.org, the organization, and uh, challenging the habit, calling out victim blaming. Um, and I know that's been the focus of your career. So you talked about all the different ways in your book, how women are blamed via diagnosis, Stockholm syndrome, for instance, which I, you make a point that it was one of the things in your book that I read. And I thought, why has this not occurred to me before? There are so many things in your book where like the light bulb goes off. Like, why did I not see it that way before? But it seems so obvious. You say, quote, it's amazing to think that there is no such thing as men who batter women syndrome, but there is battered woman syndrome. It's outrageous. I know some of this stuff is just it's just enough isn't it to just like you want to just give up on everything because it's so obvious it's like it's staring us in the face like the misogyny and the and the positioning of women who have been abused as men as being mentally ill is so obvious it's, it's right there um and I, I think that you know for years the the argument was that women who say that they're being abused by their husbands or their fathers or boyfriends were the problematic ones. And so there never has been a formulation of some sort of disorder of violent men who rape and abuse women. But there are lots of psychiatric diagnoses for women who've been raped and abused by men. It isn't a disorder. It's not an illness to be distressed because you've been subjected to serious abuse and violence and oppression and discrimination and all the rest of it. That's not a disorder. But also, um, just because some people think that I'm arguing the opposite way, I also don't think that committing those crimes is a disorder. I think that men living in a society that's misogynistic and supportive of violence of, of all kinds like we literally glorify and sensationalize violence of every kind constantly these men that commit crimes like this they're not mentally ill there's not some sort of disorder they don't require therapy they don't require medication they live in a society that congratulates them and sensationalizes what they do and actually supports what they do at every level of society so actually they're all they're behaving in a socially prescribed way it's not an illness your work is focused on the idea that no, 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 nobody's really mentally ill. Just everybody has gone through something. I mean, I know that's a vastly simplistic way of explaining it, but how much of a shift does that require in thinking to say, well, rather than saying there's something innately wrong with you, uh, instead, let's actually listen to you when you talk about your childhood abuse or whatever it is that traumatized you. It does require 
massive systemic overhaul and I, I get that that scares people and that it's and that it's a lot of work but it's the only way to make the progress that we need to make in humanity because what we've done instead is we've set up very sophisticated and intelligent progressive looking systems that mean that you know for example you can only access welfare if you'll take a psychiatric diagnosis and take the medication and you can only access certain forms of support if you'll accept you're mentally ill and take the medication you can only get on therapeutic waiting lists if you'll accept a psychiatric diagnosis and take the medication everything has become connected to these labels you were talking earlier about uh, the effort throughout the history of psychology and psychiatry to, to kind of uh, rationalize justify themselves as as medical professions and as as hard science and at one point in at one point in your book you say mental health is not the same as physical health it's not the same as a broken leg or painkillers and what hit me the flip side hit me which is when you ble- when you break a leg after a fall and you go to the emergency room or urgent care or what have you we aren't told there's a problem deep within our bones we're not told it's in our genes um we're not all told that it's osteoporosis, um, unless, you know, we're of a certain age, but they wouldn't even say that without a test. But the assumption isn't, oh, you broke your leg. There's something innately wrong with you. But the women you describe in your book, and so many women, countless women, too many women are told that they're broken, that they are the problem in an almost existential way, right? Yeah. I mean, there are many differences between mental health and physical health, but that is one of them. Uh, you know, that sort of, there is no test and that it's all just assumption and observation. And I got a lot of pushback recently because I said that there are no validated tests for any mental health issue. To, you know, there's no blood tests, there's no genetic tests, there's no brain scans, there's no water tests. There's, there is nothing. <laughs> We've created nothing in a hundred years, right? And I said, you know, the only thing that psychiatry and psychology relies upon is observational self-report measures, so psychometric measures, and they are not a diagnostic test. They they are self-report. They could change from one day to the next. They would change depending on how somebody understood the item or whether they even spoke English as a first language. They're they're hugely biased, and um, people were extremely angry with me for saying that, and... um, I often wonder, you know, how much of that anger is that they want to believe that, you know, it's a science. They want to believe that it's scientific and that there's proof that it's a men- that it's genetic or that it's a neuro, like some sort of like neurotransmitter imbalance or chemical or maybe like um, hereditary in some way or something like. They they want that because it sounds real and legitimate and it it almost validates how they're feeling as a real illness and I think that people are scared that distress and trauma is just not good enough like it's not seen as um a valid enough cause yeah no I I was just having conversations with people who who maybe mentioned the chemical imbalance theory I'm like no it it was (laughs) there is no chemical imbalance that was a market so most people don't know that. And I think we're always searching for tidy 
answers, tidy solutions to problems, but even tidy problems. And, you know, this is just one small example. Every woman has a story. I've been lucky to not get sucked into the psychiatric system myself, but I've seen it happen so many times. And I would just think back after one of my kids was born, right? I had a regular checkup and it was a young doctor I hadn't seen before. And he's sitting there with, with a checklist and he's asking me various questions. He knew that I just had a baby. I'd mentioned that I wasn't sleeping very well. And I confessed that I was down. You know, I'm kind of, oh, I'm feeling kind of down. And I'm just, te- I'm just talking to him. He's like, oh, you're supposed to tell medical professionals things, right? And he whips out his prescription pad and he writes out a prescription from Prozac. And I say, I'm not going to take that. I don't want to, I don't want I'm not going to take that. And he goes, well, yeah, here, just take it. And he hands it to me. It's like, you might change your mind. I'm like, no, I'm not going to take it. He says, take it. So he hands it to me. And I'm like, I went home and I threw it out, right? But I think back on that because for two reasons. One is I think so I know I'm not the only the only woman who has given birth and been exhausted afterward and then gone to the doctor and the doctor says, Well, <laughs> that's abnormal. Like what what about this is abnormal, you know? Yeah, this is this is some this is so important. I'm so glad you brought this up. Like, because I wrote about this in the book about you know pregnancy birth and and periods and uh, menopause stuff but the the pregnancy and the birth thing and also the postnatal period I genuinely despise how likely you are to get pathologized in that period I mean this is the thing right and I, I'm sorry to anybody listening that has not yet had children this is going to terrify you but you, you having children is really really hard okay you get pregnant your body changes in ways that you never imagined you have a load of health issues that have come out of nowhere your birth could be traumatic or it could be fine but either way it hurts and then you have to recover from that and then all of a sudden you've gone from being this individual with just you know your own choices in your own life to being the thing that keeps alive a small baby that you've never looked after before. You don't know what it does or why it keeps doing certain things. You sort of look at it and go, oh. You know, loads of mums um, start off by having their baby sleep next to them and they have this thing where they're like, oh my God, is it still breathing? Is it still watching the chest go up and down? Is it breathing? Like, yeah, it's terrifying. And then on top of that, you've got the fact that you don't have any freedom anymore. Your life revolves around the child and the sleep and the eating and, you know, getting them changed and getting them ready, right? That is a normal, massive, massive change that you would expect there to be some psychological impact there. You would expect a woman, you know, on top of the fact that you said you don't sleep properly, sleep deprivation kicks in after only two or three days, when you have gone from being heavily pregnant and sleeping quite a lot and napping and trying to sort of deal with the fact that you're heavily pregnant to suddenly sleeping sometimes 30 minute bursts or, or an hour burst in between feeds and things like that, you are going to start feeling very ill very quickly. And that is normal. And then even more so if you've got no support or if your partner's abusive or if you're a single mom, you're going to get it even worse. So I really hate the fact that, like, as you said, women could then go to the doctor a couple months later and go, God, I'm so tired. I feel terrible. I'm not eating properly. You know, I, I, I just feel so down all the time. And for them to be like, oh, it's because you're depressed. Here's a prescription. Take this every day. Like, there's just no acknowledgement that your life has just been turned upside down. There's just nothing. 
And as though it's somehow unusual, like we wouldn't be here having this conversation if if how many women hadn't already gone through this <laughs> over, over the course of human history. Yeah. And then I, I just as an aside, I found out late, like year, three or four later, three or four years later with my regular physician, I found out from her that, uh, in fact, he had put that down on my record. So she's like looking at, are you still taking Prozac? And I said, no, I, I, I never, I, I never did. And to her credit, she looked angry. That to me was my window into the pathologization of women, <laughs> one of many windows. So um, I'm just curious, did writing this book, I have to ask, did it help in some way? Did it give you any insight or direction or understanding? Um, and is, is, are there any positives that have come out of it for you, whether hearing from women reaching out to connect to tell their own stories or? I found writing the book quite difficult. There was the chapter on euthanasia that really upset me. I had to take several breaks whilst I was researching the use of euthanasia in psychiatry, because that was when I started to get really angry. And there was a couple of, you know, the interviews with the women there was several times where I came out of the interviews and just thought there's no justice. There's not, there's no appeal process. There's no, there's no way of taking action or suing these wards for what they've done to these women. So, you know, at the, at the end of the book, I I talk about things I want to create and the 10, you know, 10, 11 things that we could do to actually change this system. One of, so in terms of positivity, I know that there are quite a lot of large and very influential authorities that have read the book and are engaging with the arguments. And I'm interested to see, you know, meetings I'm having with them and trying to convince them to look at an alternative away from the DSM, away from medicalization. And, um, you know, there are a lot more people than we probably think reading a book and being like, oh, hang on a minute, this does make quite a lot of sense, actually. And so, like, that keeps me going. And I really want to build an advocacy scheme that means that you can go and get um, an advocate that can sit in with you in these meetings and challenge diagnosis and the use of medication. I really want to create that and roll it out and test it and see if it works. Because I think a lot of women are in these appointments with a psychiatrist or a nurse or some other doctor, and they're being told, you know, uh, you're mentally ill here, take this. And I just wonder sometimes if people could get an appeal or a second opinion or or had they had somebody there, like if a professional was sat next to them and said, sorry, what is it that you're prescribing and why is it that you're prescribing that? Like, because, you know, if you're in distress and you've got stuff going on, you're not necessarily going to be able to do that, but somebody else could. Um, I also want us to create an appeal process. I think that there are a lot of women out there with psychiatric diagnosis on their file that is still harming them 20, 30, 40 years down the, down the line. And they're not even taking any medication anymore. They're not even in any services, but the um, actual diagnosis is still on the file. Um, and I really want to see that taken off. I, I think that you should have the right to have things removed. Um, so I want to build something around that too. So there are, you know, positive things. Um, and I think the other thing from writing the book, the way I felt afterwards was almost like, oh, thank God I've got it all out. It's all out. It's in one book. It, it's in somewhere. It's accessible. Anybody can pick it up and read it and they'll understand what I'm talking about. 
and, and I'm glad that I've done that. I do. St- I, I don't know where my life or my career has taken me, but I do know that that's by far one of the most important things I've ever done. And I, I think that that book will outlive me. Well, it was truly great to have you here today. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for taking the time to share your insights with us. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest today was Jessica Taylor, author of Sexy But Psycho, How the Patriarchy Uses Women's Trauma Against Them, and the founder and CEO of Victim Focus, a trauma-informed organization that aims to challenge discriminatory and oppressive practices that blame victims. For more information on that, see victimfocus.org.uk. You can also follow her on Instagram and Twitter, where she's known as Dr. Jess Taylor. This has been a Mad in America podcast. I'm Amy Biancoli, and I thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Mad in America podcast. Visit madinamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.